0: The Real and the Apparent Man, delivered in New York. Here we stand, and our eyes look forward, sometimes miles ahead. Man has been doing that since he began to think. He is always looking forward, looking ahead. He wants to know where he goes even after the dissolution of his body. Various theories have been propounded. System after system has been brought forward to suggest explanations. Some have been rejected, while others have been accepted, and thus it will go on so long as man is here, so long as man thinks. There is some truth in each of these systems. There is a good deal of what is not truth in all of them. I shall try to place before you the summoned substance, the result of the inquiries in this line that have been made in India. I shall try to harmonise the various thoughts on the subject, as they have come up from time to time among Indian philosophers. I shall try to harmonise the psychologists and the metaphysicians, and if possible, I shall harmonise them with modern scientific thinkers also. The one theme of the Vedanta philosophy is the search after unity. The Hindu mind does not care for the particular. It is always after the general, nay, the universal. What is that by knowing which everything else is to be known? That is the one theme. As through the knowledge of one lump of clay, all that is of clay is known. So, What is that by knowing which this whole universe itself will be known? That is the one search. The whole of this universe, according to the Hindu philosophers, can be resolved into one material, which they call Arkasha. Everything that we see around us, feel, touch, taste, is simply a differentiated manifestation of this akasha. It is all-pervading, fine. All that we call solids, liquids or gases, figures, forms or bodies, the earth, sun, moon and stars, everything is composed of this akasha. What force is it which acts upon this akasha and manufactures this universe out of it. Along with Arkasha exists universal power. All that is power in the universe, manifesting as force or attraction, nay, even as thought, is but a different manifestation of that one power, which the Hindus call prana. This prana, acting on Arkasha, is creating the whole of this universe. In the beginning of a cycle, this prana, as it were, sleeps in the infinite ocean of Arkasha. It existed motionless in the beginning, then arises motion in this ocean of Arkasha by the action of this prana, and as this prana begins to move, to vibrate, out of this ocean, come the various celestial systems, suns, moons, stars, earth, human beings, animals, plants, and all the manifestations of all the various forces and phenomena. Every manifestation of power, therefore, according to them, is this prana. Every material manifestation is arkasha. When this cycle will end, all that we call solid will melt away into the next form, the next finer or the liquid form. That will melt into the gaseous and that into the finer and more uniform heat vibrations and all will melt back into the original akasha. And what we now call attraction, repulsion and motion will slowly resolve into the original prana then this prana is said to sleep for a period, again to emerge and to throw out all these forms. And when this period will end, the whole thing will subside again. Thus this process of creation is going down and coming up, oscillating backwards and forwards. In the language of modern science, It is becoming static during one period and during another period it is becoming dynamic. At one time it becomes potential and at the next period it becomes active. This alternation has gone on through eternity. Yet this analysis is only partial. This much has been known even to modern physical science. Beyond that, the research of physical science cannot reach. But the inquiry does not stop in consequence. We have not yet found that one, by knowing which, everything else will be known. We have resolved the whole universe into two components, into what are called matter and energy, or what the ancient philosophers of India called arkasha and prana. The next step is to resolve this akasha and the prana into their origin. Both can be resolved into a still higher entity which is called mind. It is out of mind, the mahat, the universally existing thought power, that these two have been produced. Thought is a still finer manifestation of being than either Arkasha or prana. It is thought that splits itself into these two. The universal thought existed in the beginning, and that manifested, changed, evolved into these two, Arkasha and prana. And by the combination of these two, the whole universe has been produced. We next come to psychology. I am looking at you. The external sensations are brought to me by the eyes. They are carried by the sensory nerves to the brain. The eyes are not the organs of vision. They are but the external instruments, because if the real organ behind, that which carries the sensation to the brain, is destroyed, I may have twenty eyes, yet I cannot see you. The picture on the retina may be as complete as possible, yet I shall not see you. Therefore, the organ is different from its instruments. Behind the instruments, the eyes, there must be the organ. So it is with all the sensations. The nose is not the sense of smell, it is but the instrument and behind it is the organ. With every sense we have, there is first the external instrument in the physical body. Behind that, in the same physical body, there is the organ. Yet these are not sufficient. Suppose I am talking to you, and you are listening to me with close attention. Something happens, say a bell rings. You will not. Perhaps hear the bell ring. The pulsations of that sound came to your ear, struck the tympanum. The impression was carried by the nerve into the brain. If the whole process was complete up to carrying the impulse to the brain, why did you not hear? Something else was wanting. The mind was not attached to the organ. When the mind detaches itself from the organ, the organ may bring any news to it, but the mind will not receive it. When it attaches itself to the organ, then alone is it possible for the mind to receive the news. Yet even that does not complete the whole. The instruments may bring the sensation from outside. The organs may carry it inside, The mind may attach itself to the organ, and yet the perception may not be complete. One more factor is necessary. There must be a reaction within. With this reaction comes knowledge. That which is outside sends, as it were, the current of news into my brain. My mind takes it up and presents it to the intellect which groups it in relation to preconceived impressions and sends a current of reaction, and with that reaction comes perception. Here, then, is the will. The state of mind which reacts is called buddhi, the intellect. Yet even this does not complete the whole. One more step is required, Suppose here is a camera and there is a sheet of cloth and I try to throw a picture on that sheet. What am I to do? I'm to guide various rays of light through the camera to fall upon the sheet and become grouped there. Something is necessary to have the picture thrown upon which does not move. I cannot form a picture upon something which is moving that something must be stationary because the rays of light which I throw on it are moving and these moving rays of light must be gathered, unified, coordinated and completed upon something which is stationary. Similar is the case with the sensations which these organs of ours are carrying inside and presenting to the mind and which the mind in its turn is presenting to the intellect. This process will not be complete, unless there is something permanent in the background, upon which the picture, as it were, may be formed, upon which we may unify all the different impressions. What is it that gives unity to the changing whole of our being? What is it that keeps up the identity of the moving thing, moment after moment, What is it upon which all our different impressions are pieced together, upon which the perceptions, as it were, come together, reside, and form a united whole? We have found that to serve this end, there must be something, and we also see that that something must be, relative to the body and mind, motionless. The sheet of cloth, upon which the camera throws the picture, is, relative to the rays of light, motionless, else there will be no picture. That is to say, the perceiver must be an individual. This something upon which the mind is painting all these pictures, this something upon which our sensations, carried by the mind and intellect, are placed and grouped and formed into a unity, is what is called the soul of man. We have seen that it is the universal cosmic mind that splits itself into the arkasha and prana, and beyond mind, we have found the soul in us. In the universe, behind the universal mind, there is a soul that exists, and it is called God. In the individual, it is called the soul of man. In this universe, in the cosmos, just as the universal mind becomes evolved into arkasha and prana, even so, we may find that the universal soul itself becomes evolved as mind. Is it really so with the individual man? Is his mind the creator of his body, and his soul the creator of his mind? That is to say, are his body, his mind, and his soul three different existences, or are they three in one? Or again, are they different states of existence of the same unit being? We shall gradually try to find an answer to this question the first step that we have now gained is this. Here is this external body. Behind this external body are the organs, the mind, the intellect, and behind this is the soul. At the first step, we have found, as it were, that the soul is separate from the body, separate from the mind itself. Opinions in the religious world become divided at this point, and the departure is this. All those religious views which generally pass under the name of dualism hold that this soul is qualified, that it is of various qualities, that all feelings of enjoyment, pleasure and pain really belong to the soul. The non-dualists deny that the soul has any such qualities, They say it is unqualified. Let me first take up the dualists and try to present to you their position with regard to the soul and its destiny. Next, the system that contradicts them. And lastly, let us try to find the harmony which non-dualism will bring to us. This soul of man because it is separate from the mind and body, because it is not composed of akasha and prana, must be immortal. Why? What do we mean by mortality? Decomposition. And that is only possible for things that are the result of composition. Anything that is made of two or three ingredients must become decomposed. That alone which is not the result of composition can never become decomposed and therefore can never die. It is immortal. It has been existing throughout eternity. It is uncreate. Every item of creation is simply a composition. No one ever saw creation come out of nothing. All that we know of creation is the combination of already existing things into newer forms. That being so, this soul of man being simple must have been existing forever and it will exist forever. When this body falls off, the soul lives on. According to the Vedantists, when this body dissolves, the vital forces of man go back to his mind and the mind becomes dissolved as it were into the prana and that prana enters into the soul of man and the soul of man comes out clothed as it were with what they call the fine body, the mental body or spiritual body as you may like to call it. In this body are the samskaras of the man what are the samskaras? This mind is like a lake and every thought is like a wave upon that lake. Just as in the lake waves rise and then fall down and disappear, so these thought waves are continually rising in the mind stuff and then disappearing. But they do not disappear forever. They become finer and finer, but they are all there ready to start up at another time when called upon to do so. Memory is simply calling back into waveform some of those thoughts which have gone into that finer state of existence. Thus, everything that we have thought, every action that we have done, is lodged in the mind. It is all there in fine form, and when a man dies, the sum total of these impressions is in the mind, which again works upon a little fine material as a medium. The soul, clothed as it were with these impressions and the fine body, passes out and the destiny of the soul is guided by the resultant of all the different forces represented by the different impressions. According to us, there are three different goals for the soul. Those that are very spiritual, when they die, follow the solar rays and reach what is called the solar sphere, through which they reach what is called the lunar sphere, and through that they reach what is called the sphere of lightning, and there they meet with another soul who is already blessed, and he guides the newcomer forward To the highest of all spheres, which is called the Brahma Loka, the sphere of Brahma. There these souls attain to omniscience and omnipotence, Become almost as powerful and all-knowing as God himself, And they reside there forever, according to the dualists, Or, according to the non-dualists, They become one with the universal at the end of the cycle. The next class of persons who have been doing good work with selfish motives are carried by the result of their good works when they die to what is called Lunosphere, where there are various heavens and there they acquire fine bodies, the bodies of gods. They become gods and live there and enjoy the blessing of heaven for a long period. And after that period is finished, the old karma is again upon them, and so they fall back again to the earth. They come down through the spheres of air and clouds and all these various regions, and at last reach the earth through raindrops. There on the earth they attach themselves to some cereal, which is eventually eaten by some man, who is fit to supply them with the material to make a new body. The last class, namely the wicked, when they die, become ghosts or demons, and live somewhere midway between the lunar sphere and this earth. Some try to disturb mankind, some are friendly, and after living there for some time, they also fall back to the earth and become animals. After living for some time in an animal body, they get released and come back and become men again, and thus get one more chance to work out their salvation. We see then that those who have nearly attained perfection, in whom only very little of impurity remains, go to Brahma Loka through the rays of the sun. Those who were a middling sort of people, who did some good work here with the idea of going to heaven, go to the heavens in the lunar sphere, and there obtain God-bodies, but they have again to become men, and so have one more chance to become perfect. Those who are very wicked become ghosts and demons, and then they may have to become animals. After that, they become men again and get another chance to perfect themselves. This earth is called the Karma Bumi, the sphere of karma. Here alone man makes his good or bad karma. When a man wants to go to heaven and does good works for that purpose, he becomes a god, and does not, as such, store up any bad karma. He just enjoys the effect of the good work he did on earth. And when this good karma is exhausted, there comes upon him the resultant force of all the evil karma he had previously stored up in life, and that brings him down again to this earth. In the same way, those that become ghosts remain in that state, not giving rise to fresh karma, but suffer the evil results of their past misdeeds, and later on, remain for a time in an animal body, without causing any fresh karma. When that period is finished, they too become men again. The states of reward and punishment due to good or bad karmas are devoid of the force of generating fresh karmas. They have only to be enjoyed or suffered. If there is an extraordinarily good or an extraordinarily evil karma, it bears fruit very quickly. For instance, if a man has been doing many evil things all his life, but does one good act, the result of that good act will immediately appear but when that result has been gone through, all the evil acts must produce their results also. All men who do certain good and great acts, but the general tenor of whose lives has not been correct, will become gods, and after living for some time in god bodies, enjoying the powers of gods, they will again have to become men. When the power of the good acts is thus finished, the old evil comes up to be worked out. Those who do extraordinarily evil acts have to put on ghost and devil bodies, and when the effect of those evil actions is exhausted, the little good action which remains associated with them makes them again become men. The way to Brahmaloka from which there is no more fall or return, is called the Devayana, that is, the way to God. The way to heaven is known as Petriyana, that is, the way of the fathers. Man, therefore, according to the Vedanta philosophy, is the greatest being that is in the universe, and this world of work, the best place in it, because only herein is the greatest and the best chance for him to become perfect. Angels or gods, whatever you may call them, have all to become men if they want to become perfect. This is the great centre, the wonderful poise, the wonderful opportunity, this human life. We come next to the other aspect of philosophy, there are Buddhists who deny the whole theory of the soul that I have just now been propounding. What use is there, says the Buddhist, to assume something as the substratum, as the background of this body and mind? Why may we not allow thoughts to run on? Why admit a third substance, beyond this organism composed of mind and body, a third substance called the soul. What is its use? Is not this organism sufficient to explain itself? Why take anew a third something? These arguments are very powerful. This reasoning is very strong. So far as outside research goes, we see that this organism is sufficient explanation of itself. At least, Many of us see it in that light. Why then need there be a soul as a substratum, as something which is neither mind nor body, but stands as a background for both mind and body? Let there be only mind and body. Body is the name of a stream of matter continuously changing. Mind is the name of a stream of consciousness or thought continuously changing. What produces the apparent unity between these two? This unity does not really exist, let us say. Take, for instance, a lighted torch and whirl it rapidly before you. You see a circle of fire. The circle does not really exist, but because the torch is continually moving, it leaves the appearance of a circle So there is no unity in this life. It is a mass of matter continually rushing down, and the whole of this matter you may call one unity, but no more. So is mind. Each thought is separate from every other thought. It is only the rushing current that leaves behind the illusion of unity. There is no need of a third substance. This universal phenomena of body and mind is all that really is. Do not posit something behind it. You will find that this Buddhistic thought has been taken up by certain sects and schools in modern times and all of them claim that it is new, their own invention. This has been the central idea of most of the Buddhistic philosophies that this world is itself all-sufficient, that you need not ask for any background at all. All that is, is this sense-universe. What is the use of thinking of something as a support to this universe? Everything is the aggregate of qualities. Why should there be a hypothetical substance in which they should inhere? The idea of substance comes from the rapid interchange of qualities, not from something unchangeable which exists behind them. We see how wonderful some of these arguments are, and they appeal easily to the ordinary experience of humanity. In fact, not one in a million can think of anything other than phenomena. To the vast majority of men, Nature appears to be only a changing, whirling, combining, mingling mass of change. Few of us have ever glimpsed the calm sea behind. For us, it is always lashed into waves. This universe appears to us only as a tossing mass of waves. Thus we find these two opinions. One is that there is something behind both body and mind which is an unchangeable and immovable substance and the other is that there is no such thing as immovability or unchangeability in the universe, it is all change and nothing but change. The solution of this difference comes in the next step of thought namely the non-dualistic. It says that the dualists are right in finding something behind all as a background which does not change. We cannot conceive change without there being something unchangeable. We can only conceive of anything that is changeable by knowing something which is less changeable and this also must appear more changeable in comparison with something else which is less changeable, and so on and on, until we're bound to admit that there must be something which never changes at all. The whole of this manifestation must have been in a state of non-manifestation, calm and silent, being the balance of opposing forces, so to say, when no force operated, because force acts when a disturbance of the equilibrium comes in. This universe is ever hurrying on to return to that state of equilibrium again. If we are certain of any fact whatsoever, we are certain of this. When the dualists claim that there is a something which does not change, they are perfectly right. But their analysis that it is an underlying something which is neither the body nor the mind, a something separate from both, is wrong. So far as the Buddhists say that the whole universe is a mass of change, they are perfectly right. So long as I am separate from the universe, so long as I stand back and look at something before me, so long as there are two things, the looker-on and the thing looked upon, it will appear always that the universe is one of change, continually changing all the time. But the reality is that there is both change and changelessness in this universe. It is not that the soul and the mind and the body are three separate existences, for this organism made of these three is really one. It is the same thing which appears as the body, as the mind, and as the thing beyond mind and body. But it is not at the same time all these. He who sees the body does not see the mind even. He who sees the mind does not see that which he calls the soul. And he who sees the soul, for him, the body and mind have vanished. He who sees only motion never sees absolute calm, and he who sees absolute calm, for him motion has vanished. A rope is taken for a snake. He who sees the rope as the snake, for him the rope has vanished. And when the delusion ceases and he looks at the rope, The snake has vanished.